Well, I want to spend a moment in prayer, and then uh, you might be turning to Isaiah chapter 24. Let's pray for a moment as we go to Isaiah 24. Our Father, we thank you for this full and rich Lord's Day. We have sung many glorious hymns of the faith. We have affirmed the doctrines of grace. We have affirmed our justification and our regeneration. We have affirmed faith and grace. We have affirmed our loyalty to you, our covenant loyalty. We have affirmed our Savior. We have affirmed the Father. We have affirmed the Spirit. We have driven these truths deeply into our hearts and minds. And now in Isaiah 24, Lord, oh, I pray that you would thrill our hearts with the, the promise of the soon coming Savior, the promise of a world to come so much better than this one. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to understand, to grasp, and to have our hearts thrilled by truth, which translates into lives lived in holiness. We pray these things for Christ's sake, the soon coming Savior. Amen. Isaiah 24, and when I was putting together my overall master plan uh, for presenting this Millennium Series, I I made a choice. It wasn't an easy choice, actually. It's one I, I really wrestled with. And that was to include quite a number of what I'm calling Old Testament witnesses in this, what is our our fifth mini-series on the millennium, Old Testament witnesses. And part of my reasoning was I really wanted to put premillennial theology to a rigorous test. I I don't think it's been tested as well as it could be. And the test is to see if the 19 Old Testament passages and entire books that I picked to highlight that if they could all stand the scrutiny of comparison, if they could all stand next to each other. and Now, I'm not surprised at all. I already knew the answer to this. But it is delightful that each passage that we've discussed, and we're halfway through this miniseries now, is completely consistent with all the others. There's not one passage that presents some sort of eyebrow-raising problem for another passage interpretively. And in fact, what we're also discovering is that each passage or each book that we've highlighted in the Old Testament presents a slightly unique emphasis or a unique angle to the issue of the coming intermediate kingdom of Christ on earth. And in the case of the text we're considering today, Isaiah 24, the unique perspective that this text gives us is a direct, overt, obvious indication of a time gap between the second coming of Christ and the final state of eschatology, the, the, the final uh, kingdom, the, the final state of eternity. We have assumed that, we have inferred that, we have come to that logical conclusion so far of a time gap because the circumstances that we see in the millennial kingdom in the Old Testament It speaks of things that can't be in the current age when people are living to be hundreds of years old, but it can't be things in the final state either where there's still sin on the earth. And so we have inferred and we have logically uh, come to the deduction of a time gap, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But in Isaiah 24, we get a direct statement of that time gap. It's right there and it's obvious. The final state that we would read about potentially in Revelation 22 is described at least partly in the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, 
a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. That's clearly the final state. Death is gone. No more tears. No more sin. Only believers on the new earth. But we'll see that in chapter 24, much, including an intermediate time, an intermediate kingdom, much must happen beforehand. Isaiah message, Isaiah 24 rather, messages to us something that we need, and that is hope in the world that we don't feel like we belong to. If you've been walking with Christ for any period of time, you feel more and more disjointed from this world because we don't belong. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles, other, other translations, strangers and aliens, because we're in Christ and the world hates Christ. Now, the way I want to look at Isaiah 24 is it is very much the story of winners and losers. Everyone wants to be a winner. Winners accomplish things. Winners pick the right side and they come out on top. Winners achieve and succeed. Winners have heroic tales about their own lives. Winners overcome great odds to do great things. Winners, winners have things Winners know who to back and who to stay away from. Winners know how to leverage what they have in order to get more. Winners have power, or to put it simply, winners win. But if they're winners, that implies that they're losers as well. Losers waste opportunities. Losers pick the wrong side and come out defeated. Losers don't achieve or exceed or succeed or excel in anything. Losers have boring stories about a yawning life. Losers haven't overcome anything. They haven't done anything great. Losers watch as winners have things. Losers don't know who to back. They don't know who to stay away from. They don't know how to leverage anything and never get ahead. Losers serve the winners. In other words, losers lose. And even in the realm of God's people, it seems that the people God chooses are the losers. And the ones that God doesn't choose are the winners. I'll give you an example. The twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, God chose the younger, Jacob, and rejected the older, Esau. But Genesis 36 records that the rejected one, Esau, his lineage leads to chiefs and kings. Jacob, the chosen one. Genesis 37 records that his lineage, is, lineage produces shepherds, nomads. Now, I hold to the literal interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4, which speaks of believers in Christ being taken up into heaven at the same time as all the save, saved who are died are resurrected, the rapture and resurrection event, some call it. From Daniel 9 and multiple places in the book of Revelation, I hold to a seven-year tribulation period on earth. This is a time of Antichrist seizing world dominion and ultimately events lead to controlling the world economically and religiously and, and Antichrist demands to be worshipped. 
Second Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. This is what Daniel and Jesus called the abomination of desolation. So when all the church-age Christians are gone from the rapture and Antichrist has taken over, once again, there will be winners and there will be losers. The book of Revelation tells us about these winners and losers. The winners are on the side of power. They abandon all world religions to worship at the feet of the man of lawlessness and, and how he rewards them. He gives all his faithful a mark by which they can buy and sell and be prosperous and celebrate that they're on the winning side. The mark will be something to boast about. He gives them a reason to live. He gives them a purpose in, for the very first time in history, an actual one world government. The man of lawlessness called the beast in Revelation performs miracles. He even makes fire come down from heaven by the power of Satan. The great Roman Empire is revived, as the book of Daniel predicts and, and called in Revelation, Babylon the Great. This, this creates tremendous wealth, tremendous opportunities to indulge every desire, every passion you've ever had. No more moral limitations. You do whatever you want. Now the whole earth will become like the famous motto of Las Vegas, what happens on earth stays on earth. Finally, winners can do what they want without the constraints of religious freaks telling them such senseless things such as repent and turn away from sin. In fact, when two pesky prophets of God are finally killed in Jerusalem, Revelation 11 says that the whole world will rejoice and party and even exchange gifts. And in the irony of all ironies, the killing of the prophets of God will be like Christmas. It will be a great day to be a winner. While the losers, they've believed in this mythological figure they call Jesus Christ. They worship him instead of the man of lawlessness. They're starving. They don't have enough food oftentimes. They're being killed for their faith in Jesus by the countless thousands. They have to run for their lives. They have to hide in the wilderness for years. They hide from the government that is killing those who believe in Jesus. Satan himself, called the dragon in Revelation 12, is pursuing believers to try to kill them. If they don't take the mark given to the faithful to the beast, they can't buy, they can't sell, they're cut out of the world's economy. The beast is constantly making war against them, defeating them, killing them as fast as he can find them. According to Revelation 13, there is literally not a safe country on earth to hide. There's no place to go. He'll make war with those who love Christ. Revelation 13, 7 says, in every tribe and people and language and nation, no place to run, no place to hide. The great new economic immoral government system on earth, Revelation 17 says, is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. This future time of the tribulation will be the greatest divide in history of the winners, the haves, the losers, the have-nots. But in Isaiah 24, God pulls back the curtain to reveal what's coming for the winners and what's coming for the losers. 
Uh, just to help us understand this chapter, chapters 13 through 23 consist of a long series of oracles against nations of the world who have rebelled against the holy God. They're oracles, by the way, that our own nation would do well to heed. The judgments in chapters 13 through 23 are specific to certain nations, but the judgment when we get to chapter 24 that we're considering tonight, it becomes universal in nature. It even extends into the spirit realm, into the invisible realm. And so chapters 13 through 23, these oracles against all these nations, they, they have a capper, they have a, a climactic finale, and that is the section of Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. These chapters look ahead to the judgment, not just on specific nations, but on the whole world before the return of Christ. In fact, this section is often called the Apocalypse of Isaiah or the Little Apocalypse, the, the Little Book of Revelation. It's the unveiling of what's actually happening behind the scenes of the true realities of world history and how God is behind everything and how he's moving all of history to this point. Now, up till chapter 24, nearly all of the prophecies of Isaiah have either referred to events in Isaiah's day or at times a a telescopic near and far prophecy regarding events in Isaiah's day and events at the end of time But these chapters, 24 through 27, they contain no references to present day, no references to Isaiah's time. It's all future. Seven times in these four chapters, the phrase, in that day, is used. And that's used to refer to the great day of the Lord, the day of reckoning, when the world is forced to submit to Christ. Chapter 24 alone is clearly global. It deals with the whole earth 18 times. So let's find out what happens to the winners, and then we'll find out what happens to the losers in Isaiah 24. First of all, let's find out what happens to the winners. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Behold, Yahweh empties the earth to destruction, eviscerates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. He empties the earth. It's a word that means literally to lay waste to the earth. And a little side note, so much for radical environmentalism because God's going to destroy it anyway. He distorts its surface. There's no reason to, to take this metaphorically. This is literal. Revelation 6.12 records a massive earthquake during the sixth seal judgment. Revelation 8 verse 5 records another earthquake. Revelation 11.13 records another earthquake so bad that one-tenth of Jerusalem collapses. And how about the biggest one in history? Recorded in Revelation sixteen eighteen, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The largest earthquake that has been documented since instruments were used was in 1960 in southern Chile. It's a magnitude of 9.5. Two million people were made homeless, and estimates were as high as 6,000 people were dead, but that was just local. Tsunamis began as a result, and they killed people as far away as the Philippines. 61 people died in Hawaii from a tsunami 22 hours after the earthquake. 200 people in Japan were killed when an 18-foot-high wall of water hit the island of Honshu. Southern California was damaged. It happened in Los Angeles, Long Beach Harbors, as well as San Diego. But the earthquake of Revelation 16 is bigger. In fact, verse 20 says that 
This is a shaking of the whole earth so severe that the islands sink and the mountains fall. So Hawaii, Japan, the Philippines, the Rocky Mountains, they're gone. The world is now returning to the topography it had prior to the flood, which caused the pushing up of the great mountain ranges and and began the formation of the oceans and the islands. When the Lord begins pouring out what Revelation calls the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, who will it affect among the winners? Who gets affected? Verse 2. And the people will be like the priest, the male slave like his master, the female slave like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, no one will be exempt. All the money, all the power, all the man-made safety in the world won't help out the winners. Society now gets leveled. It gets evened out. No privilege will help anyone. In fact, Revelation 16, beginning in verse 15 or Revelation 6.15 rather, says that people ranging from kings of the earth all the way down to the slaves will be crying out to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on them rather than face the wrath of the coming Son of God. And the result will be a devastated earth. Verse 3, the earth will be completely emptied to destruction and completely plundered. For Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The the world languishes and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth languish. Verse 3 answers the question, why is this happening? Very simply, for Yahweh has spoken this word. But what did these winners, what did they ever do to God? What did they ever do to him? They're just trying to enjoy life and have fun and have a good time. They're not mad at God. Here's why. Verse 5, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. For they trespassed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. What a statement. The unbeliever is pollution to the earth. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. It means defiled, desecrated, ruined. The earth was made essentially as one giant temple of God. That was the original purpose of the earth. Mankind is to enjoy God, to flourish under God's care, to worship him. It was made for mankind, but unto the glory of God. And instead, men have rejected God. They've used the earth for their own selfish desires even using things from the earth like stone and wood to make absurd idols to worship. For they trespassed laws. Which laws? All of them. James 2.10 says that humanity is guilty of violating God's holiness from every possible angle. Every law of God has been violated by mankind. And so Paul tells us what happens as a result in Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks but they became, became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, God gave mankind a conscience. We instinctively know right from wrong. We, we, we know this. But the winners decided anyway to do what they wanted and not what God wanted. 
They violated statutes in verse 5. It's a word that means they altered something. They altered the standards of God. Romans one twenty five says it this way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We see that in the news. If you uh, subject yourself to the news every day, we see unbelievers altering truth. And now they broke the everlasting covenant. What covenant is this? There's only one covenant in all of Scripture that God made with the entire world with all of mankind, an everlasting covenant, which, by the way, he continues to keep to this day. And that is God's covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. God would judge the earth with a flood, all except one family on earth who had faith in him, Noah and his immediate family. Why was God doing this? Genesis 6, 5, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God flooded the earth. He saved Noah, saved his family in the ark. And then God made a covenant. God promised to never again destroy the earth with the flood. In Genesis 9, 11, Indeed, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And all the earth sees God's sign of this covenant every time it rains, a sign that the rain will stop and not completely flood the earth. Genesis 9, 16 says, So the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. That every time mankind sees a rainbow, it is to be a reminder that God is preserving them. That grace will abound for this age of humanity. What does it mean that grace is abounding? God's grace through the revealing of himself to pre-Israel men like Noah's son Shem, and men like Job, and men like Abram. God's grace through the choosing of a nation through whom he would pour his love and through whom God would bring a Savior into the world. God's grace in the church age in which God is bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles while for a time he's turned away from Israel. God's grace when he removes the church from the earth. But all during this time of grace, as he's adding citizens to the kingdom of God by the millions, the earth is getting more and more wicked, more and more satanic, more and more wicked in the most disgusting ways we can think of. And once again, we're at this point of Genesis 6-5. Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does it mean that mankind, here in verse 5, broke the everlasting covenant? Humanity has had thousands of years, thousands of years of flaunting and mocking God's grace to not destroy the earth, of not repenting of sin, of not humbling themselves before God. They have slapped God in the face for his graciousness. Mankind sees the rainbow of God's gracious patience and scorns him instead. And in our age, now even making the rainbow, a symbol of sexual immorality. And so the earth receives what it deserves. In verse 6, Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who inhabit it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men remain. 
the scorching of the earth here. This isn't just a metaphor. That will actually happen. Revelation 8, 7, And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Verse 6 here says that few men remain. Revelation 6, 8 says that 25% of mankind will be killed by the sword, famine, disease, wild animals. Revelation 9, 5, 33% of mankind killed. If that happened today, what we're talking about is 4 billion people, half the world's population. So Isaiah isn't kidding when he writes, few men remain. What else will happen to the winners? According to the book of Revelation, famine, things falling to the earth from outer space, the sky being blocked by debris, people hiding in caves, hail and fire mixed with blood falling to the earth, some sort of giant meteor like a flaming mountain falling into the sea, much of the earth's drinking water becoming contaminated, the sun and the moon becoming darkened, the release of millions of currently imprisoned demons to torment the winners with horrific scorpion-like stings so bad that people want to die, but God won't let them die, a mighty demonic king, one of Satan's generals named Apollyon, leading all of these horrific demons. But still, Revelation 9, 20 and 21 says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent of their murderers, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, their thefts. So God's wrath will continue. Everyone who took the mark of the beast who would not repent gets painful sores on their bodies the ocean will become contaminated such that every single sea creature dies. And now all the drinking water will be contaminated and become blood. Why? Revelation 16 says, For they have shed the blood of the saints. Then the sun intensifies and, and burns people with fire. What did the winners do then when God cranked up the judgment even more? Revelation 16, 9, And the men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And then after the scorching heat, the kingdom of the beast is thrown into utter darkness. And now the earth's economic system, which was once so vital, will collapse. And worst of all, to the winners... 144,000 protected and sealed evangelists proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaiming the gospel, according to Revelation 7, to every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're converting people from winners into losers, taking people away from the winner's camp. And so the question would be to the winners, where's your party now? Verses 7 through 12 tell us, the new wine mourns, the vine languishes, all of the glad of heart sigh, the joy of tambourines ceases, the rumbling of those exulting stops, the joy of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with songs, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down, every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All gladness turns to gloom. The joy of the earth is taken away into exile. Desolation remains in the city and the gate is struck down to ruins, meaning there's no security, there's no safety. 
This is a disaster for the winners, and it's a disaster of their own making. Listen to these words from Psalm 7. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He, that is the sinner, has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. Mankind has dug a giant pit, a trap for himself, and now the trap is sprung. Verse 17. Panic and pit and pitfall are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the sound of panic will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the pitfall, for the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth quake. So for thousands and thousands of years, generation after generation has rejected the goodness of God, rejected the grace of God, rejected the offer of salvation from sin, rejected the truth that God is holy and mankind is unholy and in need of a Savior. Mankind has rejected the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He sent Him to die instead of you. God sent Jesus to take the wrath of God you rightly deserved and the winners of the earth spit in the face of God in light of the gospel. And so the earth will fall. The earth will fall. And and here's a good picture. The earth will be like a fighter who's just received a death blow to the head and staggers for a moment before falling for the last time. Verse 19. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. And now, now God will punish all evil, all who have done evil against his holy, perfect, beautiful, immaculate, eternal, pure, blessed, divine, sacred character. He'll punish the spiritual forces of evil And the human forces of evil. God will sovereignly take the battle to the enemy wherever the enemy is. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. That for a time Satan has been given control of the earth. He is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And under God's sovereign allowance, Satan controls the earth, controls the space around the earth. He even tried once to get Jesus to bow to him on the earth. Big mistake. Because now... The Savior is bringing the battle to wherever evil is. Verse 21. So it will be in that day that Yahweh will punish the host of heights on high and the kings of the earth on earth. The angelic forces of Christ Jesus will continue the conquest of Satan. The conquest of Satan began at the cross when Jesus defeated sin and death and now it continues in the heavens. Revelation 12, 7 says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war. So the conquest comes to heaven and the conquest comes to the earth. And now to the great horror of the winners. Revelation 19 describes, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sits on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
And it goes on to say, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he's defeated his enemies, verse 22, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the pit and will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. Who are they who are gathered and imprisoned and after many days punished? Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. They, Satan, and we could infer very logically all of his demons as well. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Now, I just read to you from Revelation. Did you catch what I talked about earlier? A gap. A direct mention of a gap in Revelation, but more importantly to our purposes tonight, in Isaiah 24. It's right here in verse 22. After many days, they will be punished. What does that tell the reader? That tells the reader that the judgment of God on the wicked comes in two phases, comes in two parts. First, at the initial return of Christ, and second, at the end of many days. Now, I want to slow things up a little bit because we arrived at a major road sign here in verse 21. Verses 21 through 23 form a very definite unit of thought. The broken earth theme from verse 1 all the way to verses 19 and 20, that that forms one unit of thought, that forms a, a section. It's a clearly delineated unit of thought formed by similar or identical references. So chapter 24, verse 1 all the way through verse 20 is one unit. The exultant song beginning in chapter 25, verse 1, that's a distinct unit. The the theme changes completely to exaltation and joy. What does that leave? That leaves chapter 21, verses 21, 24, rather, 21 through 23. It's its own unit. What does that mean? It means pay attention to this. Verse 21, so it will be in that day that Yahweh will punish the host of heights on high, And the kings of the earth on earth, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the pit and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be humiliated and the sun ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Why do we pay attention to this? Because Isaiah chapter 24 verses 21 through 23 just gave us the same timeline as Revelation 19 and 20. Isaiah 24, 21 and 19, 19 both speak of the kings of the earth who oppose God. Isaiah 24, 21 states that the kings of the earth, the host of heaven, will be imprisoned. Revelation 19, 21 records the defeat of kings and 21 through 3 tells of the imprisonment of Satan. Isaiah 24, 22 mentioned the use of a dungeon or a pit for imprisonment. Revelation 20, verse 1 mentions an, an abyss called a prison in 
Revelation 20, verse 7. Isaiah 24, 22 declares final judgment after many days, while Revelation 27 through 10 records the brief release of Satan, followed by his doom in the lake of fire. Verses 11 through 15 of Revelation 20 records the judgment, the lake of fire punishment of all the unbelievers of all the ages at the end of the thousand years. Isaiah 24, 23 says that the Lord will reign as king. Revelation 20, verse 6 says Christ will reign for a thousand years. Now, by this time, according to Matthew 24 and 25, all those who survive the tribulation period will be gathered, and every winner, everyone who had not bend the knee to Christ and receive his offer of grace, will be told by the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels." That's what happens to the winners. What about the losers? Back in Isaiah 24, in the second half of verse 16, Isaiah vents the frustration and the the terror of Israel specifically, but the whole world, more generally speaking, Isaiah 24, 16 at the end says, But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. It may be that Isaiah is feeling the sadness of of the prophet, realizing that the fulfillment of this vision is still so far off in the future, and that so much suffering has to happen first. Daniel 9 describes the rise of Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the first thing he'll do is bring peace to the Middle East. And one way he'll do that is to make a covenant with Israel, to let Israel live in peace with her neighbors, and even restore the old sacrificial system, finally to now be the Israel of old once again. But Antichrist is treacherous, and he is of his father, the devil. In Daniel 9, 27, says that after three and a half years, he'll break covenant. He'll put an end to Israel's independence. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus said in Matthew 24, that if you're on earth during that time, when Antichrist betrays Israel and sets himself up to be worshipped, Jesus says, flee to the mountains. And for the next three and a half years, the losers, those who've had to run for their lives, have to hide, have to die at the hands of Antichrist. They are the losers. But there's a glimmer of hope. Isaiah 24, 13. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. It's as if the picture here is that though the Lord is beating the earth like harvesting an olive tree, like devastating a vineyard, there's a gleaning. There's a remnant. There are some left. There are those left on the earth who have been faithful to Christ, what the world calls the losers. And when the winners are hiding in the rocks and the mountains because Christ is coming, because what they see is what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. When the winners are mourning and weeping, what are the losers doing? Verse 14. 
They lift up their voices. They shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of Yahweh. Therefore glorify Yahweh in the east, the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. They're from the west and the east and the coastlands, which means everywhere else. Why? Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What else is happening during the Great Tribulation? For the first time in all history, the gospel goes to every people group on earth. And now all the losers join in song. Verse 16, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. Why? Because Jesus is here. And now, verse 23, then the moon will be humiliated and the sun ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. The glory of the Lord will outshine the sun, it will outshine the moon. The king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords will take his rightful place on the throne of his earthly ancestor David and his glory will be before all his elders. Who are the elders? We see the elders in Revelation 4. They're in heaven, that is the church, and they return with him and his glory is before all of his elders. He will have returned, according to Revelation 19, bringing with him all who have died in faith or now are alive in resurrected bodies. And all the losers will be before the throne of God on earth. Now, it may be bothering you that I continue to call the faithful the losers. Why is that? This is the paradox of the gospel of Christ. To come to genuine saving faith in Christ, you must die to yourself. You must admit that you have nothing to offer God. That you have only your sin and your disgusting, rebellious lies and wickedness and adultery and immorality and cheating and stealing and self-glorification to offer God. And it all has to burn. You have to die to self. You must become a loser. Or as Jesus puts it, in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and let him and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit the man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then will repay each one according to his deeds See also Isaiah 24. You must be a loser. I'd rather be a loser like the Apostle Paul. He was a loser. He admitted defeat. Galatians 2.20 said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because the spiritual reality is only the losers win. Only the losers win. Isaiah 24, I hope that it gives you as much hope as it has me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word. What an epic chapter. What an epic lesson, Lord, to show us that you will make all things right, that you are bringing recompense to the earth 
and that we need only wait for your coming judgment and that we someday will rejoice even alongside those tribulation era saints who have come to faith after the rapture who are singing and shouting for joy when they see the son of man coming and and we in the church age will be with him as he comes that is a reality that's an actual thing that's going to happen and how encouraged our hearts are by this. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to look forward to the coming King, to look forward to that glorious day when all will be restored, all will be made right. We are thankful to you and we ask you, Lord, we beseech you, we beg you to let these words from Isaiah 24 be nailed deeply into our hearts, never to come out, to impact the way we live, the way we love, the way we serve. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.